Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Eye of the Duck early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with global dining access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different, so your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hi, I'm Adam Volerich. And I'm Dom Nero. And this is a podcast about movies and the scenes that make them special. Each week we explore a film we love and search for the scene at its center. It's Eye of the Duck. That's an idea we're borrowing from David Lynch. He says when you're studying a duck, you can look at the duck's bill, its feet, its feathers. But if you really want to get to know a duck, you have to look at its eye. In this podcast, we try to get to know a movie by its most essential scene. Welcome to Eye of the Duck. Adam, I want to start this podcast by telling you something very, very important. Okay. I just came into possession of a subwoofer came into possession of a subwoofer and like materialized in your home what does that mean i closed my eyes and then i opened them and a subwoofer was sitting in front of me wow you manifested it i didn't know that worked yes. but here we, here we have living proof that if you think it you can be it i've never had a subwoofer before and i've never known their value but i plugged in this subwoofer to my tv i do not have a great sound system and i never have And the moment that I heard that deep rumbly bass, (laughs) I missed movie theaters so much. Oh boy. And I, that feeling in my chest of that bass, I forgot that feeling. It is such a good feeling. I think we've all come to take for granted what it feels like to feel bass in your chest, (laughs) unless you have like a great sound system in your car, or you have a great subwoofer at your home. I forgot that that was an experience or a feeling or like a sensation that I just haven't had for like a year. (laughs) Oh man. And now that I have this subwoofer in my home, I'm like turning it up so loud and sitting next to it and just trying to like feel movies in my chest again. I'm so jealous. I, I like, I can't, I can't have a subwoofer in here. I mean, I could, but I would be evicted instantaneously, I'm sure. I'm sure my downstairs neighbors would immediately complain that I am shaking their entire home and uh, and just ruining all the interactions they're trying to have down there. Uh, but boy, howdy, would I love to uh, set up a subwoofer in here and just kind of plank on top of it and feel it shaking my entire body. I think that's sort of the, <laughs> the ideal situation for me. I felt compelled to share this with you because I think it speaks to how much we miss movies and how much you and I miss hanging out and going to movies. <laughs> yes. What I would do to go and see a movie and then go to a bar and talk about it. What I would do yes. for that. But I guess we should probably introduce ourselves, right? This is our first episode. That's probably the right move. I think people should probably know who we are. Who are you, Dom? I am on staff at Esquire Magazine. I'm a video editor. That's my job title. But I also write about film, TV, video games, and insane Italian-American culture stuff, and Olive Garden, and all sorts of interesting things. And I can't seem to commit to any particular thing. And that's my, my curse. Wow. I'm cursed. 
What a wonderful <laughs> curse. Uh, yeah, I'm Adam. I'm an independent filmmaker based in New York. I'm also a freelance cinematographer and occasionally a podcast producer. And you and I have a production company called Magnalux Pictures. We started it when we got out of college. We went to college together. And we have made a bunch of short films. We've made documentaries. But this is our first podcast. And we're hoping that by the end of it, we either become moral enemies or we merge into one. Those are the only two options. We will merge into one source of energy, and that energy will power my subwoofer. <laughs> all that will remain is the feeling in the chest of seeing a movie in a theater. And that's really what this is all about. <laughs> so what is Eye of the Duck? I think that's what everyone's wondering, and we've already wasted so much time. Why don't we just ro- why don't, why don't we roll the clip? Let's just roll the clip, and then we'll we'll take it from there. Okay, cool. So this is a clip of David Lynch talking about the eye of the duck. You know, nature can teach us a lot of things. But when you start looking at a duck, you see your eye is moving in a certain way. And you see textures and colors and shapes. And you start wondering about a duck. What it can teach us about, you know, any kind of abstract, you know, painting or proportions or even sequences, scenes. And it always is interesting that the eye is in the perfect place. If you move it to the body, it would get lost. If you move it to the leg or the beak, it's two kind of fast areas competing. Even though the eye is the fastest, it's the little jewel. I believe every film has uh, uh, the eye of the duck scene, but um, it can fool you, you know, which, which one it is. What's the eye of the duck scene in Blue Velvet? Is it the In Dreams? It's the eye of the duck. That's the eye of the duck. Yes, yes. The thing that I like about uh, Lynch's approach here is that, at least when I was watching films in preparation for recording this, I found that it was sort of compelling me to reverse engineer an entire film around a moment that crystallized what the film was. Um, And that wasn't just necessarily like theme or story structure or technical filmmaking. Sometimes it was one of those things. Sometimes it was all of those things. And it kind of just reminded me of that Supreme Court case about pornography of all things, where the justice is kind of just sick of the goings on in the court. And he says, like, look, I know it when I see it. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that should be the tagline of our podcast. (laughs) To me, one of the clearest examples of an eye of the duck scene is in Citizen Kane, when Kane is at the opera and he's seeing his wife perform. And after the opera is finished, there is a small ovation for her because she has not really performed that well. And Kane begins to clap. And as the rest of the audience stops clapping, Kane keeps clapping and clapping and clapping to the point that we feel embarrassed for him. We feel sympathy for him. And we also are laughing at him. And we also sort of despise him. Citizen Kane is is a unique statement about greed and power. And I think in that moment, it's sort of the distillation or the accumulation of that idea that Orson Welles was, was going for. We get it all in that moment. Yeah, I think you're right on the money with that one. Um, the scene that sort of immediately came to mind for me when we first started discussing this concept was the chestburster sequence in Alien. Uh, for me, that's sort of the moment where the film comes to life. And even though it's such a huge pivotal moment that sort of sets up the idea that now we are all alone in space and, you know, no one can hear us scream. You kind of forget that that moment comes almost like an hour in. It comes in around the 45-minute mark. It's this calm before the storm where everyone's eating dinner together around the table. Uh, John Hurt has just sort of, you know, woken up from having the face hugger on him. We thought he was dead. And now we're all sort of enjoying this moment together. And then his expression changes, and within seconds, an actual alien is bursting out of his chest and blood and viscera purchased from a local you know butcher shop is spraying all over the cast and crew and it's a moment where the film is almost teaching you how you're going to watch the rest of the movie and what the rest of the movie is going to be it also sets up all of the 
kind of memorable design elements of the movie. And that's a film that is so much about its own production design, its aesthetic. That's such a great example because an eye of the duck scene isn't just a narrative moment. It can be a sort of thesis statement um, from every part of the film, every department of the film. So much of what we love about Alien and so much of what makes that movie special is the look and is the is the practical effects. Yeah. You you are going to get pelted with blood and viscera from the local butcher shop. <laughs> and that's another great example because the xenomorph isn't in that moment at all. And what right. we remember about Alien is the xenomorph, but I don't think you have an argument for a better eye of the duck in Alien than the chestburster. I'm not sure there is one that really conveys the whole of Alien. No, I don't think so. The food ain't that bad, baby. Eat <laughs> oh, no, don't, touch, oh. don't touch it! Don't touch it! Uh, with all that said, should we talk about today's film and try and lead ourselves to its eye? Yes. Let's let's journey to the center of Looper. Cool. So today we're going to talk about Looper, released on September 28th, 2012. This is the third film written and directed by Ryan Johnson. It stars uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis as Joe, Emily Blunt, Paul Dano, Noah Segan, Piper Parabo, and Jeff Daniels. Johnson reteams with longtime producer Ram Bergman, cinematographer Steve Yedlin, and composer Nathan Johnson, bringing his whole team back with him. The film was released to pretty high critical acclaim. It was made for a budget of about $30 million and pulled in 176 at the uh, worldwide box office. It was also notably, like, I was looking into this, it's one of the first films to sort of be co-financed by Chinese production companies. And that's sort of why there are the Shanghai sequences in the film. And part of its its success at the box office was that it was not just released in the US, but it was released in China. And it managed to get around China's sort of like, they have a limit on foreign films that are allowed to play at the Chinese box office. And Looper managed to get around that by being uh, a co, co-production with China before like Marvel films and, and whatnot were trying that sort of game. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you saw Looper? Yeah, I saw it in the theater. So it must have been, I guess, like the beginning of junior year of college. And I must have seen it with uh, my then roommate, Nick Long. And I remember it it was the kind of thing where you, you watch the movie and you're just like, holy shit, like I have witnessed something. And like, be, like already like being a big fan of of Ryan Johnson from you know having seen Brick, I it was it was sort of like the moment where I was like, oh, this this is one of my guys. Like he's he's sort of he's he's in the canon for me now. Something that comes to mind is I was working in an office for a little while in a video production staff with these two guys that I really despised, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> They, since I was the new guy in the office, they used to sort of basically like haze me by doing all sorts of annoying things, like playing like wall ball above my desk while I was trying to like (laughs) do audio mastering and stuff like that. I knew like I would never get along with these guys. Like I, I, I always think of this as like the thing that was like the nail in the coffin of like, fuck these guys. (laughs) After The Last Jedi came out, which... We don't really have to get into here, but I think it's safe to say both Adam and I are like big fans. Big fan. Absolutely. After I saw it, I remember going into the office, talking to people about it. And one of the guys said to me, well, Ryan Johnson has never really made a great film. He may be a good director, but he just hasn't really made a good film yet. And I I was overpowered in that moment because everyone else in the room hated him and hated Last Jedi. And it filled me with such anger that I couldn't like scream, like <laughs> which is embarrassing because, you know, it's just a movie and I don't want to be the sort of person that, you know, <laughs> gets in a fight about a fucking movie as much as I love film. But how can you look at Looper and not 
see it as a great film. I, I'm, I, it really is, it's lost on me. The idea that like you could watch this film and just be like, yeah, all right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very, very special film, but I think I could see why someone wouldn't like it. And I think it would have to do kind of with like expectations versus reality, because the film has this big sci-fi premise, and that's what they're selling you. But in sort of typical Ryan Johnson fashion, it's actually a much smaller movie. It's kind of like this tight character drama that just happens to have this backdrop of this lofty sci-fi premise in this sort of bigger sci-fi world you know it's 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 got the sort of physical elements of a film kind of like blade runner it's got these like neon noir elements it's also got these western elements but really it's kind of just a tight character drama um and that i think is why it's so special but i think that's also why some people would probably be like what the fuck was that it was just a bunch of people talking in different rooms i hated that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think that is, I mean, there are a few things going on in this film that, um, well, I should say there are a few things going for me when I watch this film. One thing is when I watch a time travel movie, I'm very stupid. So I don't ever really <laughs> catch on to what the fuck is going on. And and I want to talk about Tenet later because it's a great example of like, that movie is not fun and time travel should be fun. And I'm a dumbass. So unless you explain <laughs> to me what's going on, I'm not going to have fun. And also, I don't really care if it doesn't make sense because I'm just there to have fun with time travel. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. to me if it doesn't all add up. That's that's my personal philosophy. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of agree with you. I think the the time travel itself ends up being sort of like one of the least interesting elements of the film once it's all sort of played out. But they have, I don't know if I would agree with that, just because Ryan Johnson, unlike Christopher Nolan, which again, we can get into Tenet later, but Ryan Johnson delights in using time travel. I think he does. I think the way he uses sure. it is just novel and weird and like stupid and funny and cool. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that 100%. And the other big thing I have going for me when I watch this film and a thing that I think a lot of people hate about it is that I don't have a a strong basis for Joseph Gordon-Levitt's face or Bruce Willis's <laughs> face. I didn't grow up watching what is it Third Rock of this from the Sun? Yeah, is I didn't that, I've never seen that either. Yeah, I didn't grow up watching that and I until after after I saw this I finally watched Die Hard for the first time. But other than that, I I haven't seen like too many Bruce Willis movies. Mm-hmm. So I remember coming out of Looper and talking to a lot of people who said they can't get into it or that, well, the movie's stupid because that his chin just doesn't make sense. He doesn't look like Bruce Willis. But that's my that's my secret here is I don't really know or care what he looks like anyway. <laughs> so when he has the prosthetic on his face, I'm like, yeah, it works for me. I think it looks great. Well, it looks weird. That's fine. I like weird. I'm weird. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I did have a, a solid sort of basis for what both of those actors look like, um, and especially Bruce Willis, both earlier in his career and present day. Like I watch a lot of Bruce Willis movies for whatever reason. Well, you watch Die Hard every year. I do watch Die Hard every year. I just I just rewatched it, which was actually a yes. really fun thing about having just rewatched Die Hard, actually, is that um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is doing a pretty good impression of young Bruce Willis. Like it's, yes, it's actually it really kind of uncanny at certain moments. Like there's, there's the moment where he's getting ready to go out for the evening and he's looking in the mirror and sort of checking out his like hairline. And there's a moment in Die Hard where Bruce Willis <laughs> is doing exactly that. And the mannerisms are pretty like identical. We should just be clear here very quickly. Adam has a Die Hard Christmas party Every year, every, every year, year yeah. he invites me, but it's on Christmas Day. Well, because it's a party for from, it's party for Jews. <laughs> but you invite <laughs> me every year, and every well, like single an year, Jew. I have to say no, and I have to feel bad that I'm not coming to your Christmas party because you have it on Christmas Day. <laughs> um, Sorry, I cut you off. No, that's cool. Anyway, all, all that is to say, I think that Joseph Gordon-Levitt sells that performance in such a way that. It doesn't matter to me how accurate or not accurate the makeup is. Um, And credit to the makeup team, I actually think it's pretty good. 
not because I it, think it looks good as hell. Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily because it makes him look like Bruce Willis, but because it makes him not look like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yes. and it makes him he he has a very interesting look to him. I mean, I'll say they nail the nose. The shot of them in profile looking at each other. It's the yes. it's, they've got the same nose. They've got the same eyebrows. They've given him prosthetic lips. They've given him color contacts. I love I love like what they turn him into. And I agree with you that it's it's not exactly Bruce Willis. I don't see any like law written down in stone that like it must be perfectly Bruce Willis. I think it doesn't matter to me if it's perfect. I just like that the director is having fun. Yeah. Like yes. I don't like when I watch The Mandalorian and I see a CGI Luke Skywalker because that's not fun to me. Agreed. That seems like a lot of overworked effects employees, you know, scrambling to estimate what Mark Hamill would have looked like <laughs> in this timeline under these conditions. Whereas, you know, I I assume that if Ryan Johnson had the reins to that episode, and it's not to say Ryan Johnson has to make everything Star Wars ever, that he would have probably just recast Luke Skywalker or, yeah. I don't know, 100%. tried to do something fun instead I of something fucking ridiculous <laughs> 100% I mean I, I listened to the uh, director's commentary for this and there's a bit where him and uh, JGL are talking about um, at one point they considered having him play old and young and they were going to have him wear you know wear prosthetics to play an old man <laughs> and they were just like no that's not going to be fun for us like it's just yeah. going to be a bad time let's not do that let's hire someone great and we'll do this the right way what is wrong with with I mean, we've been doing it since the, you know, the beginning yeah. of film, just hiring different actors to play different parts of a person's life. That's kind of what an actor does. Exactly. They play parts. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, I mean, look, Mo Moonlight is sort of like the end or be all of that, where it's just like, look how well these three different performers perfectly play this one character. Yeah. You know? That's, that's so I think to sort of like sum up the idea there, like, like another way is sort of like, I don't care how accurate the uh physical look of two different actors playing the same character is i care that the performance works yes and i care that it, it works in in the the writing and i care that it works in the direction and i care that it doesn't look like a ridiculous playstation 2 cutscene. <laughs> in the future time travel is outlawed used only in secret by the largest criminal organizations when they need someone gone and they want to erase any trace of the target ever existing they use specialized assassins like me called loopers shall i shall i share my scene yeah why don't you tell me your eye of the duck scene okay well i was between three scenes okay that i feel all are extremely viable choices i was between two so i'm curious what your three are okay i think the scene that i have to choose and it's a strange one i think to pick is the first time when young joe meets old joe in the and field yes cool and if i can just set the scene for you so you can remember you know the whole film we have been anxiously in it, it, it is leading us into this idea that young joe will meet his older self yeah i feel like the whole purpose of the paul dano sequence is to basically be a mini movie telling you like here's what the rest of the movie is going to be like yes and quick side note paul dano is fantastic in this film so he good be in more films we love paul dano he's a, <laughs> he, all about paul dano paul, and just Again, you know, real quick, I don't want to side sidetrack you too too much here, but like, what a generous performance! Like yes. he he apparently like he I was I was reading he like heard Ryan Johnson was making another movie and he was like, what roles do you have that I can play? I'll do literally anything, and he's in so little of the film, and he just gives everything to it. And, you know, he's he's someone who could be easily playing the lead in this exact kind of movie, and instead he's like, I will show up for fifteen minutes and whimper yes. and squirm all over the place and it's going to be amazing <laughs> and just be like strikingly weird yeah <laughs> every second i am on screen okay so if i can set the scene for you we have been waiting for this to happen to joe for his loop to be closed 
And when it finally happens, there is a strange feeling to this scene that I think sort of defines the whole vibe of what Ryan Johnson is doing. And it, it leaves like a taste in your mouth. And that to me is an eye of the duck quality. It's a blue sky and we see Joseph Gordon-Levitt standing there and there's something going on with his face. I, I think it's zooming, slowly zooming in on his face. There's a blue sky above and there's a very small streak of a cloud that's sort of like scribbled in the air. Mm -hmm. And for years, I've wondered if they added that cloud in post because it looks like so perfectly strange just sitting up there. And when you slowly push on Joseph Gordon-Levitt's face in that weird fucking like Buster Keaton, like weird, you know, prosthetic that he's wearing. It looks like his eyebrows are drawn on with black marker they or are. something. <laughs> well, not with there's, black marker, but the eyebrows are a makeup job. There's just something very striking and strange about his face. And then when he sees himself, there is this sense that, oh, this is interesting because this is something I've, I don't think I've quite seen in a movie before. It's this feeling of like a young man confronted with his older self and the choice of to kill his older self to have the life that he wants to have, which is sort of, you know, the whole, it's the whole of Looper. There's no music. And when it cuts to the wide shot, you know, young Joe is on one side and then old Joe just appears on the other side. There's no like Terminator sort of like, you know, ball of fire. He doesn't show up naked. He just shows up and there's a cornfield and the way that it's framed, it reminds us of sort of like a Western like duel because they're 100%. on opposite sides of the screen. Yeah. And when he confronts himself, Bruce Willis just utterly kicks the shit out of him, which is just <laughs> so amazing because Bruce Willis has no weapon. He is completely unarmed. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt is standing in front of his face with a fucking shotgun and he loses. <laughs> yeah. Well, he he does he does beat him in the head with a brick of gold. It is worth noting that it's yes. it's not totally unarmed. <laughs> well, let's be clear. Joseph Gordon-Levitt fires his gigantic shotgun and Bruce Willis turns around and catches it with the gold with that's the gold, stored yeah. in his back. And then while Joseph Gordon-Levitt is loading his shotgun, Bruce Willis takes out a gold bar and frisbees it across the screen <laughs> into Joseph Gordon-Levitt's face, runs across the, sh the screen and punches him and knocks him out, like knocks him yeah. out cold. <laughs> <laughs> and then what follows that scene, and we can get into this after we hear your scene, Adam, but what follows that scene is a very sort of astonishing and strange, just you know, strange is the word to use here. It's just a strange sequence of kind of time travel sort of twisting in on itself, mm -hmm. like a strand of DNA. It's just sort of twisting all around. And we eventually arrive back at this moment. But here, as we're talking about Looper and everything we love about it and what defines that film, I struggle to really think of a clearer distillation and a more memorable, you know, distillation of what Ryan Johnson's going for than that scene. I mean, I think that's a solid argument for that. What about you? What do you? Yeah. So, so my scene is very, very different, actually. I'm glad we don't have the same one. So my scene comes at around like the 90 minute mark. So I think you're talking about something within the first like half hour. And so I'm pointing to something towards the end. This is a moment after Jesse, played by Garrett Dillahunt, comes to the farm where um, Joe is hiding out with Sarah and Sid. And Sid comes down the stairs and leads Joseph Gordon-Levitt into a door. And then it cuts to the two of them in this little foxhole in the front yard of the farmhouse. And the scene is quite short, but it's the two of them talking. 
just at this really quiet moment while maybe like you know we don't know what's going on in the house but we know that while they're in there there's this high tension that like sarah needs to get rid of this guy because he's dangerous he works for abe and the other criminals that joe is on the run from and he talks to sid the the young boy and they sort of have this back and forth about joe's childhood and joe tells him essentially that he and his mother were vagrants his mother was addicted to drugs and sold him to the same gangsters that got her hooked on drugs to pay for her addiction and that's sort of like how he ended up loose in the big city and gets picked up by Abe. And that's how he sort of becomes a looper. So we're sort of learning about this idea of this like cycle of violence. Um, and, you know, because Joe himself now is a criminal and is addicted to drugs and not just a criminal, but a murderer. And so he's, he's sort of talking about like the whole criminal enterprise and what it is to be a looper and all these other things. And he says, it's just men trying to figure out what they would do to keep what's theirs, what they've got. That's the only kind of man there is. And he finishes that sentence. And the first thing out of Sid's mouth is I'm going to protect my mom. I'm going to make sure no one can kill her. And so you've got this one character who is the victim of sort of this cycle of violence that is now perpetuating it himself. And this kid who's on the precipice of perhaps becoming the same kind of person. And we, the viewer, already know that he is going to become that kind of person because we know he's the Rainmaker. And the other thing I just love about that scene is that that's a scene that you could argue should be on the cutting room floor. Because the the real sort of tension of that sequence is we need to get Gatman, we need to get this killer out of the house. And there's a version of this film where the two of them are just in the closet and we're seeing sort of like their view of Emily Blunt convincing this guy that there's no one in the house and that he should leave. But that's not how it's played. You know, we, instead we cut away from that and we have this quiet moment between Joe and this kid and we learn so much about both of them. And I think to me, we learn what the film is actually about, which I think to me is this idea of a cycle of violence. I think the loop is the cycle of violence. And without this scene, the moment where Joe decides to sacrifice himself is so much less, uh, it, 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 it would hit you less hard, I think. A man in the city found me, put a gun in my hand, gave me something that was mine. It's just men trying to figure out what they would do to keep what's theirs, what they got. It's the only kind of man there is. I'm not gonna let Sarah get killed. I think that's a really wonderful scene to talk about, and I love that we have completely different readings. And can I tell you about the two others that I was thinking? Yeah, please. The scene at the very end when he says, and then I saw it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a bit of voiceover that just comes out of fucking nowhere. Yeah, it's the first time we've had voiceover since like the first act of the film, basically. Yeah, and then I saw it. And he describes exactly what you were just saying, the cycle of violence and how he can be the one to end it. And he does. And it's a surprising ending in a time travel movie where we think that everything has already been laid out for us. It's yeah. very confusing and a kind of another astonishing moment that is like very Ryan Johnson, very just like, how can I use time travel to craft what really matters, an emotional moment. Yeah. And- in this moment, I wanted to make sure I brought up Tenet. Mm -hmm. I finally watched Tenet for the first time, and I think it was shortly after you watched it, Adam. I asked you, do you think I will like it? And you were like, no, but you should watch it. It's a wild movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I sat down to watch it on the Blu-ray, and I found no joy in that film. And I totally, you know, I don't want this to be a place where we just, you know, just shit on movies, especially not I'll movies I'll say I like found plenty Tenet. of joy in Tenet. I quite enjoyed myself. I can completely understand the value of that film and the amazing, you know, direction and cinematography and action choreography, everything in there and the soundtrack and the backwards motion stuff. It's all, you know, I'm no person in the right mind could say that that stuff is not well done. But I watched Looper, you know, maybe a week after I watched Tenet. And Tenet was still in my head. Mm -hmm. And 
seeing Looper, I felt like I had finally, I, I felt some sort of strange redemption or something for how I felt about Tenet. Because I came out of Tenet feeling like, am I such a dumbass that I can't fucking understand anything and that I can't derive joy from this film because I am so fucking dumb? <laughs> or is this film just not a fun film? Are they not having fun with... And just in this moment, I think Looper finally showed me like, no, you're looking for a film with emotions. Right. You're, you're looking for a film with, with fully developed characters who exist as people and not just as constructs. And Tennant announces that its characters are constructs and not people by giving them names like the protagonist, you know, <laughs> which is fine. You know, it's, 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 it's a totally different approach to a film, I think. Um, well, I will be the one to say, it's not fine. <laughs> I don't like it. I want characters to be characters. It's God. This is the only thing I'm I looking mean, yeah, for in the film ideally, is characters that I can yes. care about. But we can. I mean, we could argue all. Yeah, I don't want to get into. I don't want to get into Tenet too much. But uh. <laughs> but I think this is this scene to me is like the untenant. It's mm-hmm. like Ryan Johnson putting a line in the sand of like. This is a movie about people. In the end, I don't really care about time travel. It doesn't yeah, matter to me. Absolutely. And I think that that's so cool. I mean, that, that, to me, that's so cool. That ties into sort of exactly why I like that scene in the foxhole and sort of why I can understand people not liking this movie at all is because they're going in kind of expecting perhaps Tenet and they're not getting that. Well, if they don't like them, I will fight them. <laughs> With my fists. It's interesting that you brought up uh, Terminator before and saying that it's not like Terminator. He doesn't show up in a sort of, you know, cloud of electricity and fire. But thinking about it now, I'm like, this movie is actually exactly like Terminator. Bruce Willis <laughs> comes back from the future. He immediately goes to like a convenience store and he robs someone of their like belongings and their clothes, which he wears for the duration of the film. And his mission is to go to every house where potentially the Rainmaker lives and in Terminator he's going to meet every Sarah Connor so he can kill them before they give birth to a uh, a John Connor. So he's, it's kind of the exact same thing uh, in that sense. Then I saw it. I saw a mom who would die for her son. A man who would kill for his wife. So I changed it. Well, that brings me to my other scene that I think is a great Eye of the Duck scene that I would 100% agree with. Ryan Johnson is a he is aware of movies. Yeah, sure. If if you love his films, you know that like this guy is well versed in film. Yeah. And he is aware that when you watch a film, you are thinking about other films. It just is a thing that happens when you watch movies, right? Yeah, 100%. And and he's someone with a really broad um like cinema lexicon. You know, like yeah. he studies all kinds of movies, you know, there's there's elements of stagecoach in the last Jedi and things like that. Yeah, and I think that's a great way to put it that like when you're watching a Ryan Johnson film, you have this feeling that like this is not like a stuffy, pretentious film person. Although I'm sure he knows all about, you know, Ozu and Fellini and all that stuff, which, you know, we all love and there's a place for that for sure. We love cinema. But too often we're surrounded by people who love cinema at a level that is like grading. And when you... (laughs) And when you watch a film like Looper, I think you get this vibe that the Simpsons are as important to him as like Bresson. Sure. And I think that's very cool. And with that in mind, I love that you bring up Terminator because I think, of course, he's making a time travel movie. Of course, he understands we're thinking about Back to the Future. We're thinking about Terminator. We're thinking about all those movies. And he's riffing on that in a fun way. Again, he's having fun. And one of the greatest scenes in this film is when young Joe and old Joe come face to face in the diner. Yes. This was, this was the other scene I was considering. Okay, great. Yeah. It's, it's heat. I mean, it's, it's the heat diner scene. Mm -hmm. And maybe in heat, they meet at a restaurant, but it doesn't really matter. Just the idea that these two, you know, the protagonist and the antagonist 
are going to meet face to face to have this very sort of serious philosophical debate about right and wrong and learn that they're both on the same, yeah. you know, we're not that different, you and I. It's, you know, the, <laughs> the hero and the villain coming face to face. But Ryan Johnson being, you know, the very smart and cool filmmaker that he is, he gives us a scene where, like, we expect them to be acting like Pacino and De Niro do in Heat. But the way that they actually act is... Uh, I mean, like a father, like oh yeah, smacking it's 100% his son on the a father ass or something. It's great. Like yeah. he calls him old man, but, old joke, yeah. calls him boy. It's perfect. But, but also, I mean, not only are they acting like father and son, which is funny and interesting. I mean, they are the same person, so that is endlessly interesting that they're acting like that. But also, he is sort of admitting in that scene, like, look, guys, this is about you know this man who for all intents and purposes hates himself. This is like <laughs> self-hatred on full display. Yeah, he's literally he's trying to kill himself. Yeah. He's fighting with himself and calling himself, you know, either old man or boy. And the time travel stuff in this scene, I think Bruce Willis even says, oh, it's, like, oh, it's we don't, so good. He says, I don't, yeah, I, I don't, don't, don't want to waste my time with that. Like, you know, yeah. <laughs> Which he, is says, like, he says, um, this he is says, like if, we, if, we go, if we go into it, we're going to start, we're going to be here all day making diagrams with straws. <laughs> like, this is the scene where that happens. Like, in Tenet, like, that's the whole movie. In Heat, like, this is where you do that. But yeah. Ryan Johnson's like, all right, you get what's going on here. Let's just have fun with this scene instead of like Which do that is shit. So it's so interesting too because this movie, Tenet, and Avengers Endgame, they all have time travel and they all have a moment where they're basically just like, shut up, don't worry. Like stop trying to figure <laughs> it out. Like we're just gonna do the time travel and you're gonna enjoy it. <laughs> That was almost my scene and it, it ended up just not, you know, we're talking about it like it just being a feeling, you know it when you see it. The foxhole just ended up feeling more like that scene for me. But, you know, a, a, again, referencing sort of the, the Blu-ray here, I was watching the deleted scenes and there is an extended cut of that scene in the diner where two things happen that are very interesting. One is they do actually start making diagrams with straws, but it's not about time travel. It's about the way that his memories function. And I won't go into detail on that because it's it's fun, but it's like whatever. But the thing that stood out to me was there's a there's a monologue that's been cut and I will read it. I won't attempt to perform it because that would be embarrassing for everyone. Old Joe is looking at young Joe and he says, when you're tasked with the unthinkable, your mind will do anything it possibly can to stop it. To do the unthinkable, you got to know why you're doing it. you got to know in your bones so you can say it out loud to someone without apologizing for it. Or else you can cut yourself off and go numb. But that path will kill you too. And not that like I'm all about sort of like theme being spelled out in dialogue, etc. But I think if that monologue had been in the diner scene, that would have undeniably sort of been my eye of the duck. This moment where old and young meet and we sort of understand who both of these men are, who this man is in that moment. And I think that that little monologue there would kind of do it for you. It's a very similar sort of idea to the, um, you know, like I got to protect what's mine. And I think it works better in the foxhole sequence. But I think that if it was laid out like this, the diner sequence, simply because it is old and young Joe talking to each other, that would have sort of made it for me. Do you know what's going to happen? You've done all this already as me? I don't want to talk about time travel shit. Because if we start talking about it, then we're going to be here all day talking about it, making diagrams with straws. It doesn't matter. When I hurt myself, it changes your body. This is what I do now, change your memory. It doesn't matter! Just say, he, he did bring in the filmmaker who made Primer, which is like considered to be sort of like the most scientifically sound time travel film, to take a look at the script and sort of let him know, like, where can I make changes? You know, what would make this more accurate? And he got like sort of like all the notes back and he's like, nah, it's not fun. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I don't know. For me, it just gets to a point with like nitpicking movies. Does it really have to make sense? I mean, if, I don't if think the so. I don't think I, there, exactly. I don't think to? a movie has to be completely one hundred percent sound. It's not a battleship, you know. I just I need it to work for me on an emotional level, and I need it to entertain me. 
Um, yeah. And and if it's able to do those things, I don't care if the time travel mechanism is functional. However, I will say there is a special feature on the on the disc all about the time travel, and there were rules to it that they had laid out. They just didn't read out any of the rules in the film because who cares you don't need that information having that information would just detract from the emotion the only interesting thing from that featurette that i wish had made its way into the film because i do think it's so intriguing is this idea that the time travel device they are using has no controls it is permanently set to 30 years from the day you enter it so no matter when you put someone in the time machine, they're going to pop out 30 years beforehand, which is such a weird and specific way for the time travel to function that I think makes the film even cooler. Wow. That's a really cool little little nugget there. I had no idea. I guess, yeah, like you're saying, it, it doesn't, doesn't really matter as long as the emotions are there. Right. I mean, it's like Mission Impossible Fallout, which has a relatively incomprehensible series of, you know, plot devices that you know move the nuclear weapons from one party to another and you reach a point where you're like who has this bomb like i don't know who has the bomb and you realize like i actually don't care because i'm just having a really good time right now is that how i was supposed to feel when i was watching tenet I feel I like mean, you're like my tenant therapist. <laughs> like, how was I supposed no, to No, okay, so he, I, I think actually, which is helpful in sort of like unlocking the rest of the Nolan films, is that Nolan, he assumes that because he understands what's going on, you do too. <laughs> and so I can't tell you that I 100% understood everything going on in that movie. I can tell you I really enjoyed watching John David Washington and uh, Robert Pattinson hanging out. And I really enjoyed watching them do all the cool action stuff. Um, is it going to be in my top 10 films of the year? No. Did I have a good time watching it? Yes. Do I wish I'd seen it in a cinema? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. I guess that definitely helps some of my trauma related to that film. <laughs> Would you say that Looper is his best film? Hmm. I might. I might. It's hard. It's hard to like rank them. It's hard because Last Jedi is so good, but it carries so much like peripheral shit that's like orbiting around. That I know. Film it's like I never really want to have a conversation about that film in a public space ever again. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I could rank them all. I, but I, but I do love all of them. You know, which is it's not. It's rare. It's rare that you love an entire, the entire body of work. I think. I'm so excited about him. Just as a fan of of him and of film yeah. in general, I, I like him. He seems like a good guy. Everything about what he does in film is is cool and and interesting to me. Yeah, and and even just from like a production standpoint, I like the way he approaches filmmaking. Like the vast majority of the effects work in this film was at least partially practical. Even like the scene where Sid sort of loses it inside the house and he kills Jesse. When everything lifts up off the ground, it's all on wires. That's not CG props being floated up into the air. That's all the props in the room being lifted up by wires and they're just painting out the wires in post. I mean, obviously so they're cool. doing heavy effects work on Jesse as he's like exploding. <laughs> but <laughs> but the, the rest of it is all pretty much done in camera. And the same thing with um, all the, the TK characters who are like flipping coins and lighters and stuff around. That's all just shit on strings. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, it looks great. I just think it speaks to sort of like a... a philosophically sort of approaching things the right way i guess yeah an old-fashioned way that we both like and respect and we hope yeah but he's doing so much that, that's new as well that's true yeah because yeah. even even within the text of this film he's sort of like reckoning with that because he has abe say to joe the movies you're copying are just copying other movies so he oh yeah he, he's like he's recognizing in the mirror like i do this but I'm going to yeah. do something with it, you know? I have, personally, I have one last thing to say about Looper. Yeah, sure. When I first watched the film, remember watching it and coming out and sort of having what felt like a time travel sort of feeling. I saw myself as an older person 30, 40 years from now, and I saw a rack of DVDs in my living room, and I saw Looper sitting there, and I thought of it as a film that, you know, similar to a movie like The Fugitive or The Untouchables or these just very classic 
sturdy action film. Mm -hmm. It's just sitting on my DVD rack. And when I want to take it off my rack, I can push it into the DVD player and enjoy it. And it still hits the same way. And although I'm not as old as I was imagining in that scenario, now, uh, what is it? like? Eight years later. I feel like it has kind of uh, closed its loop with me where <laughs> I did watch it and I felt exactly how I thought I was going to feel about it of like, fuck, that's a good movie. Mm -hmm. I love that movie. I don't, I don't need to think about it too much. I don't need to do too much work afterwards. I don't need to get myself in an old frame of mind to see it. I don't need to like yeah. forget other movies. It's just there and it's good sturdy filmmaking it's always gonna work so both young dom and old dom enjoy <laughs> excellent <laughs> i will put out though that in this potential future we are still watching movies on dvd players <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm a physical media evangelist so i definitely will be i'll be the, I'll, i will forever be the annoying guy at the party telling you that the image fidelity is better on the disc well it is i mean no one can <laughs> oh and we didn't talk about Baby Hitler, but this film is exactly about, like, what if I just killed Baby Hitler? <laughs> <laughs> That's so true, actually. <laughs> it's also interesting because this is one man's personal Baby Hitler. That should be the, the, the log line. <laughs> one man's personal Baby Hitler. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for listening. We want to hear from you guys. Tell us about your Eye of the Duck scenes. You can find us on all social media at Eye of the Duck Pod. Email us with any questions, comments, or concerns at contact at eyeofthedockpod.com. Listen to us on all your favorite podcasting apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google, and more. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about the show. It really does help. You can find me on Twitter at Dominic Nero. That's Dominic with an I-C-K. And keep up with my writing about film, television, video games, and everything else on Esquire.com. And you can find me on all social media at Adam Vol. That's V-O-L-E. Or online at AdamVolerich.com. Our theme song, Snowflake, is written by Jesse Lewis and comes from his album, Atticus. You can find out more about Jesse at jessielewismusic.com. And our logo was designed by Francesca Volrich. You can purchase her work at society6.com slash Francesca Volrich. And next time you watch a movie, remember to keep your eye on the duck. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Eye of the Duck early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, but after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music.